Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto, blockchain, and Web 3.0 space. Our mission is simple, to share knowledge, facilitate discourse, and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals, decentralization solutions, and relevant use cases for today's digital economy. We at Blockchain Recorded are not registered investment advisors and do not deal with financial or trading token elements, nor offer any licensed financial services. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, while the opinions of all parties involved are their own. I'm your host, Nina Tserar, and now let's talk blockchain. Before we begin, this podcast is possible by our sponsor at Ambire. The Ambire wallet is one of the top products in crypto asset management. It is the first open source, non-custodial smart wallet that delivers exceptional user experience combined with solid security. With Ambire wallet, users can easily navigate the world of Web3. It comes packed with features like built-in swaps, cross-chain bridges, integrated earning opportunities, and more. In addition, Ambire offers things like human-readable transaction parsing, eliminating ERC-20 approvals and front-running protection. The smart wallet uses gas abstractions that allow for unique features like paying for gas with stable coins. Users can batch multiple transactions to save time and gas fees. The wallet also supports NFTs and allows you to connect to any dApp via Wallet Connect. You can use it with an email and password or add hardware wallets or hot wallets as signers to upgrade your security. And the best part? Ambire speaks human. The UI is friendly and informative, ensuring you understand what you're doing and eliminating risks for mistakes. Ambire wallet users are currently eligible for continuous wallet token rewards. To learn more and get your Ambire account today, visit www.ambire.com. That is A-M-B-I-R-E.com. So today I speak with Emmanuel Daniel. Emmanuel is a global thought leader in the future of finance, an entrepreneur, and writer. He's listed as a top 10 global influencer in the FinTech Power 50 list for 2021 and 2022. Emmanuel writes and talks about the future of finance with a special focus on how blockchain, cryptocurrencies, gaming, and other technologies are fostering new and networked transactional opportunities. He just published his book called The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is Here, which we will touch upon and integrate in today's conversation with respect to the evolution of finance, DeFi, CBDCs, and what Emmanuel finds in his travels in terms of crypto adoption use cases. On that note, Emmanuel, welcome to Blockchain Recorded. Nina, I'm very happy to be on your program. Uh, I see that you do very good work uh, in trying to drill down um, to um, how blockchain uh, is being applied um, across the board. And uh, very happy to share with you what I think is happening in finance. Great. Well, thank you, Emmanuel, for, for joining us. And there's so many things to talk about and structure properly uh, in our conversation today. Um, but first, please tell us more about yourself and what led you to talk about the personalization of finance and finance 5.0, which you actually talk about your book, uh, and then crypto, the networked world, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm the founder of something called The Asian Banker. It's a platform, it's publication, but it's also many other things. We provide consulting services to banks. Uh, I started it uh, in 1996, so it's been about 28 years now. Uh, And over the years, um, I have had the privilege uh, of going into almost any country, first in the Asia-Pacific region and then into the Middle East, Africa. Uh, and as I was doing this, um, I found that I had greater access to uh, some of the top bankers uh, in North America, U- Europe, and the UK, and so on. 
And in the process, I understood a lot about um, how banking itself uh, has been evolving. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I started to draw many you know, important um, elements uh, that I think drives the financial services industry that many people today are not even talking about. Uh, that defines the industry traditionally. Mm -hmm. And in the process, I think that for a very long time, uh, I was all about um, how banks and financial institutions uh, absorb innovation and then capture it and, and, and then apply it. Uh, and then they themselves are transformed for another era. So those of us who know that, you know, how uh, the ATM industry started with banking and made banking more accessible outside of the traditional branch hours, uh, that's an old story now. Mm -hmm. But banks were very proud of themselves when they made that transition. They said, oh, this is innovation, um, you know, and then uh, what was happening at the back end, the core banking systems, the general ledgers, um, and being able to even come to a point of providing instant payment. Uh, instant uh, account, um, you know, retrieval and account consolidation. Uh, that was uh, an incredible journey uh, in the banking industry uh, right through the 1990s into the 2000s. Uh, and a lot of the technology uh, aspects and the technology vendors tended to sponsor a lot of our activities. And so we talked to them a lot and they would tell the banks, you know, how they are introducing innovations and so on. By the 2010s, I was starting to see a new uh, evolution. Uh, of course, uh, Bitcoin was already uh, in force, uh, but the uh, mobile revolution uh, was also evolving uh, dramatically uh, and redefining not just financial services, but every you know, industry in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where I had to go through my own journey uh, to wrap my mind around uh, how much of that evolution was a, an evolutionary process, meaning you know, more of the same and, and, uh, and traditional banking innovation, and how much of it was disruptive, how much of it was so new that uh, we now needed to start, start thinking about um, what's new in the industry. From between 2010 and today, many of your listeners will know this, that when the new innovations came on, whether it was cryptocurrencies, blockchain, uh, and so on, and even API as a revolution, which is the idea that any application development can be done by thousands of freelancers uh, uh, sharing coding on a shared network. Uh, you know. Now, all of these uh, innovations threaten to undermine the traditional institution. And what the regulators have ended up doing is they have uh, tried to absorb this innovation into traditional banking and to sort of give a longer lifespan for traditional banks uh, that they will survive the process, that they will be able to embrace these innovations and, uh, and still survive. But what I think is happening is that something more fundamental is happening and it's a disruptive change, which is that the ordinary person is becoming increasingly empowered uh, to own and manage his financial services needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and the whole idea of financial services itself needs to be transformed in that what people don't need today is another bank account. Um, you know, the, the IMF, the World Bank, um, you know, all the uh, aid agencies says, oh, do you know how many people don't have a bank account? And so financial inclusion is all about giving them a bank account. You know, we have wallets today, we have ecosystems uh, that plugs ordinary people uh, into the ecosystems that they want to belong to. You know, so, so what I'm now saying to the banks is that, guess what? Your products have to change. And that's not where banks are at the moment. Right. Okay. So when I wrote this book, um, The Great Transition, 
the personalization of finance is here. Mm. I wrote it at several different levels. The first premise was that technology itself uh, is going through a transition from its um, platform era to its personalization era. And there I found that after I wrote my, the draft of my book, when I was sharing it with uh, friends in Google and so on, they don't want to accept that. And you think that Google is all about innovation. No, they, they are masters of the platform era. Uh, they will slow down uh, this transition to personalization as far as they can. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what is personalization? It's that the uh, individual is an owner of his own data. He decides uh, who he wants to give it to. He decides uh, the community that he wants to build around himself or herself. Um, and he des- decides um, how value is uh, is captured and, and transmitted, um, you know, and that's a long journey. It might well take the next 150 years to get there, but that journey has already started. Mm-hmm. And all the business models that succeeded uh, in the original platform era are now starting to unravel. Uh, and, you know, and this is the year when Facebook, for example, has started to see a decline in the number of users um, and uh, the discipline that the market is putting on Facebook um, to be able right. to make that transition. So, so that's been my journey. And, uh, you know, that's what uh, brought me to where we are today. That's, uh, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that you alluded to a few of the points that you, you mentioned in your book, um, which I, I read, uh, and I, I found it pretty fascinating. I think it's, uh, I think it's inc- incredibly important. But just to, to give it maybe a different spin in this podcast, let's just maybe cut to the chase. And I'd like to pick your brain on you, what you mentioned you just alluded to products need to change, right? What banks need to do. And this leads me to the sort of hot topic that it's on everyone's mind. And these are the CBDCs. So the CBDC topic, which you also talk about in your book, how do you see central bank digital currencies in comparison to cryptocurrencies? Do you think they will succeed or is it a waste of time? Now, I know I read your book, so I'm not going to give it away. So I'll, I'll let you take it away from here. Actually, if you, uh, anyone who reads my book will not find the direct answer to that. True. But I'll give the direct <laughs> answer here. The reason is that my book actually goes back to first principles. Um, and it's, it was a journey for myself as well, meaning that what is finance? What, what defines finance? Mm-hmm. So um, when, when we think about the discussion on CBDCs, uh, something that someone who's not been in finance for any, long, any period of time will not know a few things. He will not know the nature of central banks, um, how they are organized, how they are motivated, how they talk to each other, um, and how they, uh, they cling on to, from one theme to another. Okay, um, so central banks, for example, have this uh, have this um, concept in economics, which they call inflation targeting. Uh, if you know the history of inflation targeting, it started with a small central bank in New Zealand, mm-hmm. and uh, the New Zealand central bank governor gave himself his job title. He gave himself his KPI and said, "My KPI is to keep inflation within two percent um, of, um, of where it is now, uh, up or, or, or down." Uh, you know, and and for some reason, uh, the idea just caught on and, and uh, you know, uh, many central banks set this kind of target for themselves. And today, even the U.S. central bank uh, has this kind of idea at the back of their mind that they have the, the idea of uh, inflation management is inflation targeting. Okay? And it's usually about 2% either direction. So in the same way, uh, when uh, the Chinese regulators 
thought about central bank digital currencies as a way of uh, creating a monetary system which they had greater control over, the Western regulators or other central banks also said to themselves, look, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are running away right now, uh, you know, and, and capturing everybody's imagination. Guess what? We can do the same, you know, and everyone forgot that in Uruguay, uh, they had an experiment on CBDCs and they declared the experiment a success and they quietly shut it down after that. Okay. And I'm actually visiting Uruguay later in, in December and I'm going to ask them this question. Oh, perfect. Now, then uh, when the Chinese were building the idea of CBDCs, they were constructing the story as they went along. Okay. In two years into the project, they, they suddenly realized that uh, not suddenly, but I'm sure they realized it somewhere in the process mm. that if the general ledger of the uh, central bank digital currency is with the central bank, then you do not need the banks. Um, you know, you, you have a system that entirely bypasses banks, which then uh, renders banking uh, irrelevant. Uh, and if you render banking irrelevant, then who's going to lend money, um, you know, and, and leverage um, the value of money in order to grow the economy? Mm. Um, so then we had to recreate uh, um an artificial uh, process uh, to uh, keep the banks uh, still involved in an artificial way. The, the truth is they don't need to, but now they um, are saying that they will, uh, you know, that they will disperse uh, the money through the banking system. Then for many countries, the banking system already has, uh, and in fact, a lot in Europe and Southeast Asia, uh, banks are already highly digitized in their banking uh, payments and, and uh, circulation of currencies. In many instances, you don't even need a credit card. A debit card uh, enables you to get around, you know, um, everyday life. Right. Uh, you can do transfers on digital banks and, and so on. So then the, the thing is that when you put CBDCs alongside uh, digital banks, uh, digital, current, digital accounts of fiat currencies, uh, the, the difference isn't very much, you know. So they've created this incredible number of redundancies, uh, which the central banks haven't figured out uh, how they're going to answer that. Mm. Uh, and then on, on top of that, the energy that you see in the uh, cryptocurrency world, you take any of the cryptos, like, you know, uh, any of the of the uh, cryptos that you find in uh, decentralized finance, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Polygon, which is, uh, you know, capitalized to $8 billion, which has about 300,000, um, you know, programmers working on it. Sushi Shop, which is $2 billion. Uniswap, which is $8 billion. You know, all of these uh, cryptos, the, the sheer energy and the ability to raise funding mm -hmm. uh, for them to be able to build applications surpasses anything that any one central bank can do anywhere in the world. Okay, um, and so while central banks are trying to mimic cryptocurrencies, cryptocurrencies will continue to evolve in, in an incredibly capitalistic way uh, to find applications um, and uh, that are that are sustainable. You know, now there is a problem with a lot of the decentralized finance taking place today in that uh, we have a, a number of bad actors. Uh, it's very easy for bad actors to come in and to thwart the system, you know, and bad actors, not just, uh, you know, not just criminals. It's just, you know, some stupid people who, who create algorithms, uh, which doesn't make sense. Um, you know, if my, if my crypto value goes up and yours goes down, I will, you know, subsidize yours, uh, you know, and then, then the investor is left hanging uh, as to, you know, which one he should be hanging on to and stuff like that. 
Now, the system is in its initial phases. We are in year five or year six of decentralized finance. And so the central banks come into the picture and say, no, we've got to regulate this uh, because uh, this is dangerous and so on. You know, this year alone, uh, and a lot of central banks today take the view that, oh, cryptocurrencies are dangerous. Uh, they, are, mm-hmm. they destroy value. Right. This year, from January to about September, uh, the U.S. stock market crashed uh, about uh, $2 trillion worth of um, 401k accounts yeah. uh, just in you know, nine months. I think central banks should be spending more time worrying about that, which is real money, right. you know, than to prevent poor people who don't have money from losing money, um, you know, um, on, on crypto or on decentralized finance. So now the thing is that we are in a journey. We are in a phase where central banks think that there's a role uh, for themselves in the crypto uh, or rather in, the, in setting up uh, central bank digital currencies. What I think will happen is this that the energy and the creativity and and the sheer uh, participation of ordinary programmers and ordinary programmers will eventually um, go down to the level of 11-year-old kids who will be able to create applications around cryptos in the same way that they're able to create their own games Mm -hmm. on gaming platforms today um, and, and take the agenda away from the central banks. Okay, it's a battle that I think the central banks cannot win, uh, will not win. Okay, but but in the process, while putting in place the rules for engagement, they are serving a purpose, which is um, you know that that there's a need to create a trusted ecosystem uh, in which uh, money will evolve uh, and the idea of money will evolve. You know, and on on top of everything, there are central banks, bankers in in the U.S. and Canada, these two countries especially. Ordinary people just don't trust banks. Period. You know, so why? What? It is not even central bankers. It's people like Janet Yellen, who is now who was a central banker, but who is now the, the the secretary of the treasury, who is pioneering a number of the white papers to promote the idea of a central bank digital currency in the U.S. I mean, they've got they 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 don't have their feet to the ground. Um, you know, in Canada, for example, after what happened with the the truckers' um, revolt in Ottawa, mm-hmm. trust that the state should have be should, should be given the responsibility of issuing a central bank digital currency that they can control or switch off whenever they want to. Um, you know, and why is it that central bankers don't see a connection between what people are thinking on the ground and the way they think is? Uh, something that I'm putting my, I mean, my, my, I'm, I'm, I'm observing and I'm, I'm putting my finger on to see how that's going to evolve. Okay. Now, now having said that, the U.S. is doing something very interesting, and I think also in Singapore, the central banks are taking a enlightened view uh, to the evolution of stable coins. Now, by regulating stable coins, they are making it a two-way process by which a stable coin could effectively become a central bank digital currency. Uh, and a stable coin, you know, the thing about crypto that many people don't seem to realize, the, the beauty of crypto is not that, you know, Bitcoin goes up to $59,000 or $60,000. It's that every one of us can issue our own crypto. Yes. Um, you know, yes. every bank can issue its own uh, stable coin. Um, and as they bring in the regulations to regulate stablecoin as a deposit-taking business 
Um, there is no reason why a bank can't say to its customers, don't put money into your deposit account. Here, we're going to issue a stable coin and we're going to put lots of technology around it so that you can pay anyone you want, whenever you want and how you want and with whatever conditions you want. Um, you know, and, and that's our stable coin. Then it becomes a competition between banks uh, on issuing stable coins. And that kind of an ecosystem is, I can see it happening in the US uh, because the regulators have already stepped in to start regulating stable coins as deposit-taking institutions, you know. So I think that when you go back to first principles and see why central banks think the way they do and the, the redundancies that they have created for themselves, which is a taxpayer's money, uh, you know, and the responsibility that central banks are taking on themselves, it's a lost cause. I don't see them succeeding. In fact, I'm probably the only person who's saying this <laughs> anywhere in the world. And I'm observing uh, the evolution closely uh, to see at which point I might be wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and by the way, central banks have had previous projects where they have uh, put out a dire situation uh, to their people uh, and made it look like we have no alternative, but we have to um, you know, invest in this. Uh, and then they've been wrong. Okay, and the Y2K, for example, was mm. uh, was one such uh, project where you know central banks around the world decided that hey, you know, the banking system is going to blow apart because you know you don't have the the the, the number there that takes you into the into the new millennium, right? Uh, you know, and nothing happened basically. Um, you know, so they they tend to they do tend to uh, when it comes to technology, they do tend to you know run from one height to the next. You know, and and this is how I see it. Now I'm I'm happy to be proven wrong, but so I see that um, eventually there has to be a more uh, libertarian approach uh, to how value is created and transmitted. Yeah, um, you just mentioned the hype, but for me, it's uh, it's more of a distraction than anything else, right? Depends, uh, and it, it's interesting. Um, I, I could, I could speak to this volumes, but um, uh, I'm curious also in terms of the CBDCs. Uh, you mentioned that it may fail. What about in terms of privacy in CBDCs? You know, cash is automatically associated with privacy. Privacy being one of the main features of cash. And the same time, so these new coming central bank digital currencies, such as the digital dollar, euro, or yuan, for example, will tighten the grip on traceability and drastically reduce the privacy aspects associated with money. Yeah. Are we trading privacy for convenience? Yeah, so these are the existentialist questions uh, that are wrapped around finance. And, and actually, that these are the questions that I... Uh, cover in my book. I'm not just talking finance. I'm talking about how yes. entire civilization is evolving to become more per personalized. The, the personalization of of society as a whole, uh, and that has uh, long term consequences. So at a, at an operating level, when you listen to what the Chinese uh, PBOC, uh, the digital renminbi team, are saying, they said that below five thousand renminbi, we will not uh, we will not monitor. The transactions above five thousand, uh, we will monitor the transactions. Now, when you hear something like that, you say, "Well, what it means is that you can monitor any transaction you want." Um, you know, uh, so what comfort are you giving to the user that below five thousand, you wouldn't run after, uh, or rather, you would not be able to track uh, transactions if you had a reason to track? 
And the responsibility that central banks are giving themselves, now this is yet another reason why the whole model has to fail, is because they're giving themselves a governance model that doesn't exist today. You know, if you if you have a rogue uh, prime minister or something, and this is not just China, any country for the world in the world, uh, who who says that you know uh, you you don't track transactions, but I want you to track this particular one because uh, it's important. And you see the U.S. doing this mm-hmm. all the time. Right, all transactions are fine until we say that it's not. Um, you know, and and during that period where the transactions to, to Iran were not clear because the, the European Union had struck struck uh, an agreement with Iran on the on on the nuclear pro, uh, nuclear proliferation um, uh, problem that they had. You know, the U.S. had backed out. And then there were European banks like Standard Chartered, which were still processing dollar transactions that went through the U.S. And the U.S. said, oh, this is an Iran transaction. This is wrong. You know, so the same thing is going to be able to happen in central bank digital currencies. And this time, it's not just the U.S. that's going to be able to track the transaction. It will be any central bank for their own, central, uh, for their own currencies. And it's a level of governance that no central bank in the world is ready for, you know, and uh, and it puts it it puts the central bank at odds with their own political system mm-hmm. their own politicians when central banks have spent so much time trying to become as neutral as possible uh you know and so on so so the thing is that when it comes to privacy issues you know the working route appears to be for stable coins to be manufactured by anyone uh, and then create interconnectivity between them than for any one government agency to be responsible. Okay, Now, no central bank has been able to reply this question uh, satisfactorily. Mm-hmm. What about the privacy issue? Mm-hmm. They, they're actually skirting around it. Mm-hmm. So my, my short answer is that uh, the practical considerations alone do not allow central banks to honour this privacy issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you also you speak of uh, community currencies um, in just a, a little shift here uh, in your book in terms of vis-a-vis fiat currencies. Um, this is a Kenya example. How successful that was. Mm. What are your What are your thoughts there? What's what What are your What do you think in terms of the community currencies being successful? So one of the difficulties I had in writing my book was that it was not, it was a little bit of everything, right. um, you know, and, and actually sets the stage for conversations like this. But anyone who reads the book will say, okay, so where is he going with this? Um, you know, and what's interesting about community currencies is that since I wrote that small you know, section of a chapter, things have been moving very fast. There are lots of activities underway right now. What community currencies do and uh, play to earn does is that it now gives a new way to capture value and transmit value, okay? Uh, And that's a function of currencies. That's a function of money. And and because of uh, the evolution to digital, this new, or rather these problems that money always had, does money capture value? Uh, Actually, it doesn't. A dollar is a a promissory note. It's a promise to pay you a dollar. Uh, It doesn't capture a dollar's worth of work done by somebody, you know, and... um, and now with digital, we are able to, to mimic the ability to, to generate that value. And, and community currencies demonstrate this very well. And 
guess what? Um, the, the example that I gave in Kenya, which is Safaru Credit, it's just one of easily about 100 community currency projects. And I detected five in the US alone, uh, which uh, are run at uh, local levels, uh, small towns, you know, impoverished uh, uh, villages, even where there is a fiat currency that is functional, like in Kenya, you have the Kenyan dollar and uh, Kenyan currency. I'm sorry, I'm not sure if it's a dollar. but um, And yet there was a need to build a currency within a closed community to be able to capture value among the unemployed youth. Uh, which is, you know, if you do a piece of work for me, I give you a little piece of paper and then you can use that paper to go and buy food uh, in the local community. Now, and when you put that on a blockchain uh, and when you digitize it, uh, it then starts to take a life of its own. You can pay somebody else with it. You can um, exchange food for, with, with someone within that ecosystem and so on. And you can also create interoperability with fiat currency. So like Access Infinity, which is a gaming uh, play to earn token in the Philippines, I've actually met the, both the banker and the technology platform, the owners, of the, the founders of uh, Access Infinity, and they were telling me how they were helping each other. That is, you can actually take the token out to the bank and they will exchange that for fiat currency for which you go out and you buy food. So there's a, there's a real dimension uh, being created. Now, now these are very, very, uh, at the moment, these are very, very highly localized uh, experiments, mm-hmm. you know, and generally not scalable uh, yet. But when you put technology on them, you know, you need to see how the evolution uh, evolves. Now, the, how the evolution takes place depends not so much on technology, but on how society itself, um, you know, respects value. Uh, and we see this in NFTs today, which is, uh, why would anyone pay uh, $1,000 for a painting that they've not ever seen before? Um, you know, and, and, and then why would people buy from each other? We are still in the experimental stage. Uh, people are saying, I'm willing to give this, um, you know, this um, incredible piece of art uh, a value, um, you know, things like that. Now, so, so in my book, in the first two chapters, I'm actually trying to figure out what is the mechanism by which value will be captured. So I, I have a section there that I talk about how, you know, the sun's energy is captured by chlorophyll uh, in plants, which are then eaten by animals and then which become food. Uh, you know, so that's how, that's one way in which, uh, you know, value is captured and then transmitted. Mm-hmm. Um, so do we have an equivalent of that in, 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 in monetary terms? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in the middle section of the book, I, I then struggle with a lot with traditional banking and you need to put them together to make sense of where it's all going. Okay. So then towards the end of the book, I, I then start uh, hypothesizing that as we become increasingly digitized and as we become highly networked, uh, we need a different ecosystem uh, for these type of values to exist and, and cooperate. We don't see some of the ecosystem today because we are functioning in what, we, what I call, and I actually borrowed this term from uh, another writer, uh, David Ronfell, who said that we are now in the markets ecosystem. For us, value is something that we transact by you, me buying something from you. So if you say that you have $10 worth, my job is to take that $10 from you, but give you $10 worth of value. Um, you know, and once we make the transition, um, there's a buyer and a seller, a winner and a loser, a profit and a loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, then I need, and, the, and the person who made the loss needs to go and recover the loss by the next transaction. Uh, in a network world, that kind of winner-loser model doesn't exist, uh, where the more you share, 
that's when the value goes up. And that's what we see in ride hailing, for example, when the more information there is floating around, we are able to reprice the cost of a transport based on supply and demand uh, and, 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 uh, and, who, and, and the interest in, in generating that value. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the network world is just being created. Um, you know, we, we, we are operating in, in, uh, in, in the markets world, uh, and that's why we don't see why the value that's being created in the network world even makes sense today. Right. We are in a great transition, and that's why the title of the book. <laughs> yes, I wanted to ask, actually, because uh, I found this fascinating. Um, my master's was actually organizational and social psychology, so I found uh, Ronfeld's four forms of organization super fascinating, and I love the fact that you included them in the book, going from, to, for our listeners who are, who are not familiar, so the he starts with the first form, more prim- primitive form of tribal, and then he moves on to institutional right. and markets where sort of we are in now. Um, but could you argue that we are in somewhat already entering or entered the network system? And and we are in, in and we just need to. We just don't know it yet. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's um, you know by by making it as neat as Ronfeld does. Uh, it helps us in our conversation. So Bitcoin, for example, everything that, you know, Charlie Munger and, and, uh, um, and Warren, Buffett. What Warren Buffett says is true. Yeah. Uh, as long as you are <laughs> dealing with uh, cryptos uh, as an asset class, um, you know, and, and as a security and in the securities uh, um, universe, you know, it, it, um, there's a supply and demand, you know, curve that goes up and down. Yes. Uh, and, and you need to follow that curve to, to know at which point something uh, is valuable and something is not. And you buy low and you buy and you sell high. Um, you know, those are the rules of the markets universe that we are mm-hmm. thinking. And so everything that Warren Buffett says about crypto as being even as being you know, a Ponzi scheme where, you know, the, the value is uh, increased because there are very few owners who are whales uh, and, and that, um, you know, and as long as they um, create value that is bought by uh, everybody else, then, you know, you've got a Ponzi effect uh, in, in operation. Uh, and he's not wrong when he says that, you know, but then when you look at the utility of a crypto or a, or a Bitcoin and look at the number of applications that are being built around it uh, and the number of uh, new cryptos that are being created, um, uh, new tokens that are being created to be able to make it interoperable, um, you know, create liquidity, create marketplaces and so on. That's a whole different ballgame. And we haven't started seeing value being created in the networked world. Now, I even think that in the network world, mm-hmm. uh, the the monetary value of a crypto like Bitcoin might even crash because when it crashes, it becomes more functional. Uh, it becomes usable, uh, you know. And so, don't be surprised that if um, you know the the successful transition that crypto makes or Bitcoin makes uh, will actually make it so ordinary that we'll be wondering like, what what was it about but Bitcoin that we were paying sixty thousand dollars in value for, um, you know? And now, so when some of the analysts, you know, say that uh, I'm, I'm just thinking of somebody who, who we all know, uh, you know, in California, who, who says that, oh, crypto has got a potential of going up to $150,000 and even $200,000. They are thinking of the value in market terms, right. that there will be institutional buyers and, and that will create a, a demand for, for this, uh, for Bitcoin uh, and so on. 
and uh, and then it will go up in value. And I think that it will that will take place as long as we are talking about markets. But where, once we make the transition finally, uh, I think it will crash, and uh, I think it will become commonplace in the same way that we are thinking about tulips in in, in Holland. Like you know, they are beautiful flowers, but yeah. what happened? In that short period um, where the value did go up, right. uh, it was a percent yes. value in, a, in, in tulips becoming a security just like shares and in the early days of the share markets in, in, in Europe. Sure, sure. Um, well, speaking of, um, let's, let's take a dive sort of in the, in the DeFi aspect and um, the role of crypto exchanges. Do you think that they are changing and, if, and how so if they are? Um, it seems to me that um, individuals are increasingly being incentivized to store their own cryptos uh, and uh, and manage their own cryptos and to to be able to buy and sell with other individuals in a peer-to-peer uh, platform, peer-to-peer, even in fact using peer-to-peer tokens uh, to be able mm-hmm. to interact with each other. So I think that the whole concept of a marketplace is being uh, fundamentally transformed. And I say this even as there are any number of players who want to set up their own markets, uh, you know, in France, in, in, in parts of Europe, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just the coin basis of the world. Uh, it's, you know, there are, there are increasingly, there are easily a hundred, you know, markets, um, marketplaces. And um, I think that marketplaces uh, will continue to evolve, but, the players will find it increasingly difficult to be profitable, um, you know, and I mean, it will be necessary, but the, the business model of a marketplace is being eroded by two things. One is that it's becoming highly commoditized and mm. second is that it's becoming easily uh, possible for individuals to uh, transact or have greater control over the transactions at the peer-to-peer level. Now, where is that going? Uh, not clear yet. Uh, because even the custodian model is evolving, you know, and uh, banks are saying, in fact, in Singapore right now, last week, there was a uh, announcement of a, they call it a purpose-bound money. And, uh, and there were the Singapore, there's one Singapore dollar stable coin that is being used to, to build a lot of applications on them, on it. It's called XXGD. And it, it seems that mm-hmm. that uh, the institutions like JP Morgan and, and DBS Bank in Singapore are willing to trust, you know, tokens like Uniswap to to provide the the the, the authenticity of the transaction uh, without having an intermediary in the process. So these are traditional financial institutions that are increasingly willing to use permissionless platforms to organize a transaction. Um, Now, the details of it is still in pilot stage, but the fact that financial institutions are willing to take on permissionless platforms uh, or rather use from permissionless platforms uh, is an incredible breakthrough at the moment. Um, And uh, part of the reason they they are willing to use uh, platforms like Polygon and Uniswap uh, is because I think that they can't keep up with the changes taking place in mm. uh, in the crypto um, universe. Uh, and in fact, 
uh, a lot of the institutional players in blockchain are just racing after the innovations taking yeah. um, you know and so now they're saying you know what let's just write the wave rather than and then try to capture it and 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 make us uh, the the traditional institutions the intermediaries yeah if you can't fight it join it right <laughs> join forces what do you i mean you, you did sort of allude to this already but what should banks do really i mean do you think that um, okay ride the wave what, what what does that really mean i mean should they issue their own cryptocurrencies so that's the i have a whole chapter called uh, you know i have a whole chapter in my book which i which i say uh, reimagining the product right mm -hmm. and i just touch on three products uh, mapping dump the de deposit account revolutionize yes. credit and rewriting the peer to peer playbook what should traditional institutions do they should not be in love with the products that have defined them all through time and then they say oh mm -hmm. you know we don't have an alternative and then i tell them the story of kodak yeah. kodak invented uh, digital uh, film in the 19 mid 1990s 95 or so and yet it was the one institution that did not make the transition to uh, digital instead it took great pride in the 35 mm uh, film the physical film right it kept selling right into the 2000s uh, and by the time uh, and in the early 2000s it was sony camera and then 2007 was uh, uh, you know the iphone which then put the camera on a phone uh, and yet you know kodak uh, continued to be uh, you know committed to its physical film and and then went into bankruptcy in 2010 So when I tell when I ask bankers what is the product that you love the most uh, they will say deposits yeah the deposit accounts right <laughs> all the digital banks in the world you know they are built on the proposition or they they their their self validation is that they're able to onboard depositors like you wouldn't believe uh, you know if a bank does 20,000 new depositors a month in its traditional branch uh, branch account branch uh, delivery a digital bank can do 100,000 entirely on digital so it's commoditized the ability to raise uh, deposits you know and yet when you think of it banks pay nothing for deposits uh, but then you know trade the deposits on their trading book and then uh, make lots of money and profitability out of that so the common man gets nothing by putting it mm. uh, into a bank no. account uh, but in in ecosystems in countries where platforms have figured out to, how to generate ecosystems like especially in china uh, you will see that it's a lot of people have as much money on on their alipay or or their wechat account than as they do in their bank account because they can use it immediately you know they can um, they can use it for their daily lives from everything from the time they wake up to go to restaurant to um, you know to to get a taxi and, and so on so the, the utility of the deposit account has already moved towards uh, utilization in a network and uh, universe i'm telling banks that uh, you shouldn't be in love with your deposit account uh, it should be something else now the utility of of a deposit account as i said earlier uh, is uh, seems to be created on cryptocurrencies on stable coins so i don't see why uh, eventually when the regulations are in place that every bank should issue its own stable coin uh and mm -hmm. compete on the utility or the utilization and the cross utilization of of uh, stable coins now the other thing the other area that i thought uh will uh, evolve uh is peer to peer products so uh, and here i'm not talking banks uh, i'm talking about the uh, players who thought that they were disruptors to banks okay so we've had 
one round of the peer-to-peer players coming on stream and saying, you know what, you don't need a bank. Uh, you want to borrow money, we will connect you with somebody uh, who can lend you money. Uh, and so they and they don't have they don't take that money onto their balance sheet. So they have no balance sheet. They are basically a network player. And then guess what happened to all the major peer-to-peer players in the US and in the UK? They eventually wanted to become banks themselves. Mm, right. Revert back. Why did they do that? Uh, it's because they were imagining that the product uh, was exactly a bank product, uh, an investment or a loan or a mortgage loan. So somebody wants to buy a house and therefore I will get a mortgage loan for you from another individual. Now, in the networked world, the product will no longer be a mortgage. Um, you know, when, when the peer-to-peer players imagine their product as being exactly what the banks are selling, mm-hmm. then they fall into the trap of having the same cost base as the banks have. Um, you know, they, they have the same regulatory issues as the banks have. Um, you know, the regulators come after them and, and they start regulating them. And because of that, the, they, they fall into the same cost issues as banks do when they are selling a mortgage loan uh, or a deposit. But if the peer-to-peer players imagine that uh, the real value in a peer-to-peer uh, ecosystem is the information symmetry that's being created. Uh, and from there, uh, the, the borrower or the lender reimagines the product. Mm-hmm. So you borrow from 12 people instead of two people. Uh, and you have different payout periods depending on which point in your own lifestyle, life cycle you are in. Now, you can do all that because crypto is enabling a lot of conditions to be able to be captured in a, in a transaction. Uh, and then you, you actually end up having a product uh, which is commensurate with you as a person, your lifestyle, uh, and your needs at different points uh, in your life. And that information alone can be traded by somebody else who has a different lifestyle expectation and so on. So you take the idea of mortgage out of your mind and what you're trading is information. Uh, I, we haven't reached that there yet because the world is not uh, networked enough uh, and because the regulators keep insisting that Uh, the peer-to-peer players to be regulated just like a financial institution should. But as more information is traded between the parties, uh, you will start seeing that, I call it a revival of the peer-to-peer revolution and rethinking again that the thing that we need to reimagine is the product in finance. The Blockchain Recorded Podcast is a media partner with the Stronger Together Challenge Initiative. Our collaborative role extends to hosting topic-specific panels to facilitate discussion and perspectives within varying industries related to the Web3 space. Let us have a few words with Laurent Perello, the initiative founder. Laurent, what is the Stronger Together Challenge Initiative? First, we have to mention that it's an ecosystem initiative. In other words, a voluntary movement encompassing leading partners and projects of the Tron and BitTorrent chain ecosystem. What are the main goals of this initiative? The main goal is to demonstrate the powerful together effect. As I used to say, together is much more than a word. It's, uh, it's magic. We aim to show to the world crypto industry and beyond that the Web3 revolution is not about competition, but rather about cooperation. You know, we are really supportive, welcoming, open-minded and inclusive. It's not a marketing speech. 
This initiative is also a way to confirm our long-term commitment, regardless of the bear or bull market situation, and our determination to keep on building every day, guided by a long-term vision and a humanistic philosophy. Thanks, Laurent, for illustrating what Stronger Together stands for. Season one of the initiative successfully ended, while season two is planned to start in December. Let me also mention that panels will be celebrated by NFT airdrops. Stay tuned for further updates. Do you think that the Web3 open permissionless philosophy is too, is too open for the world governments to permit serious finance to be operated and adopted in such form? So both governments and big businesses are reacting against it and uh, wishing to regulate open finance. You know, now, uh, okay, sorry, uh, Web3. Open finance is a different question. At the same time, the same governments are saying that uh, the individual should have greater ownership of, of his data. Right. So right. open finance is actually uh, being promoted and, and becoming universally you know, very, very popular. Uh, in fact, I was at a conference in the U.S., uh, where the regulator of the of the Consumer Protection Agency uh, said that they're going to promote uh, open finance in the U.S. Right, so it's a phenomenon that started in the EU, EU, and and in in the UK, uh, and today um, a, a number of countries around the world committed to open finance. And open finance essentially is that is based on the premise that the that the individual has greater control over the data who he gives it to, and any financial institution has to respect that that's the starting point of the the personalization of finance right mm -hmm. web3 is a unit is a universe where permissionless is the operating principle mm -hmm. now traditional banks have wasted the last 10 years thinking of blockchain uh, as a permission uh, ecosystem that they create around themselves uh, and that just like cbdc's is a lost cause uh, because if I participate in a blockchain transaction because you invited me or you validated me, then you don't need a blockchain transaction. It's basically uh, a shared ledger. That's all it is. Right. Meaning that it's a closed ecosystem. It's a shared ledger. And the financial institution is taking responsibility for who participates in, in that system. Uh, and, I, and I say this, right? Uh, and that's where the middle of my book is sometimes difficult to understand because, you know, I'm actually talking to bankers. And I'm saying to bankers that as long as you have a compliance department in the back of your office uh, and they are very highly paid, they're going to kill your blockchain transaction because... Uh, the compliance department is is um, is freaking out that there's so much fraud taking place in finance today, even within financial institutions, right? So anything above uh, $100 million transaction, okay, let's give that as an imaginative number. Um, the, the, the central, the, your compliance department is going to say, no, we've got to do this transaction manually. You know, we, we need to have an idea of all the parties involved. So all the models built by financial institutions today on blockchain have a redundancy built in there which is unnecessary because that's not the intention of blockchain. Blockchain is intended to be permissionless. Right. The Patio uh, platform that is jointly owned, I think, by JP Morgan and DBS Bank in Singapore uh, is interesting because they are the first that has, uh, has said that they are willing to use permissionless um, platform uh, for transactions. So it's still early days. And uh, I'll say this. That the traditional institution, uh, whether it's a financial institution, a regulator, 
founder or a big business, um, and I mean Amazon, uh, you know, uh, Facebook, any of these who are trying to create a payment system platform, are not willing to give up to uh, give in to permissionless willingly. But where there has been some small, um, con- you know, uh, they they. Um, they've given in to the to the model. Uh, I'm watching that carefully to see where how far it will go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's pretty early days at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but it'll be interesting because the, there there are a lot of way there are a lot of things that are standing in the way for for finance becoming permissionless. We'll see how that unfolds. Um, so l- let's take a little turn um, to maybe actually touch upon some uh, use cases that are happening in countries, and you you travel quite a bit. So El Salvador Bitcoin Initiative. What are your thoughts on the progress of El Salvador's Bitcoin Initiative and its realization? So the nice thing about traveling as much as I do is that you start to see uh, uh, similarities uh, between seemingly unrelated. Unrelated, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll put El Salvador uh, and the Bahamas, uh, um, you know, CBDC uh, on the same uh, in the in the same pond as as say, facing the same issue. By the way, the Bahamas CBDC is actually one of the world's first functioning CBDCs. The Chinese one is still a pilot. Uh, so I went to Bahamas and I visited the, the central bank governor uh, and, and so on. And in the conversation I had with him, everything he said was very good. Until towards the end of the conversation, I said, I asked him, I said, uh, how are the banks, you know, supporting your CBDC initiative? And he says, they're not. And I said, yeah, sure. The battlefield is at the point of sale, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and this is the same battlefield that a Singapore has or a UK has when they wanted to, uh, you know, to, to introduce um, innovations in payments, you know, and in the Bahamas, for example, you know, 99% of transactions are credit card transactions uh, from traditional American tourists. That's the only real economy in the Bahamas. 99%? 99% is, you know, wow. you know, swiping their credit card, which then gets captured in the banking system. Mm-hmm. About the 1% of the Bahamans who are poor, who, who are mm. outside the system, uh, who need a currency that, that they can function, you know. And here's where, uh, and, and then you go around the world, okay, you take uh you take why you see photographs of uh you know street uh, urchins in china have got qr codes uh for you to give them money uh using wechat pay then you realize mm. that the poor people are not asking for a digital payment platform that's unique to themselves they are asking for digital access to the same ecosystem as anybody else is right Okay, so don't use this phrase financial inclusion uh, callously because I see it being used, oh, we're going to do this for financial inclusion. No, you're not going to Mm -hmm. alternative system for poor poor, poor people. So now coming back to uh, El Salvador, uh, the utilization of of, um, Bitcoin, uh, although Bitcoin is uh, now official currency in El Salvador, is less than 2%. Mm. And then the biggest use case for uh, Bitcoin in the El Salvador model that the president had pioneered uh, worldwide, right, uh, was that El Salvador sees about $40 billion worth of remittance a year uh, into the economy. Now, the problem is now the $40 billion is not coming through the Bitcoin channel when it was supposed to, because uh, with Bitcoin, uh, it was assumed that 
uh, El Salvadorians working in the US and other parts of the world uh, could send money back um, you know, much more easily. But because there's an intermediary function, Bitcoin transmission actually costs almost the same as uh, ordinary remittances. Uh, and that's the problem that they need to get over uh, in order to make Bitcoin uh, more popular uh, in El Salvador. And just like in uh, the Bahamas, when someone goes to a store, the battle at the point of sale is actually captured by traditional banks, which have decided that Visa and MasterCard, will, that the processing company will get part of the fees. And when you bring in an innovation, whether it's Bitcoin or CBDCs, you need to see how are you going to reconfigure the battlefield at the point of sale. Um, you know, and they're not going to give it up easily. In fact, guess what? The same problems apply to the US, which is going to be launching Fed now next year, okay, in 2023. Now, all the conversations that I've had in the US with bankers uh, is that the bankers don't understand why, why Fed now is even important. And Fed now is actually instant payment that you already see in Europe, uh, in, in UK, and, and a number of countries, Singapore, uh, I think in South Africa, and so on. Um, and, in, and in Australia, for sure, um, you know, um, and uh, you, you think that when a central bank regulator mandates instant pay, which is a mobile device being able to make uh, instant payment between banks, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that, that such a revolution should be um, common sense that it will wipe the U.S. Uh, I mean, it will be very successful in the U.S., but the bankers are holding out as far as they can. They're slowing down the process. And actually, banks around the world do not like to see instant pay because uh, it affects their float. Uh, and they try to slow it down as far as possible. Uh, you know, so you see CBDC, cryptocurrencies, um, instant payment, they all have the same problem. They all get killed at the point of sale until uh, a new uh, ecosystem evolves. And in the case of the US, you know, payments is a multi-layer uh, industry. Uh, a number of players make money. The ACHs make money. The card associations make money. The banks issuing and, and accepting make money, uh, you know, and so on. So to dismantle that system, a central bank or anyone trying to recreate a new system uh, has to figure out what the trade-off is, you know, and the, how the new players uh, can become successful. And crypto doesn't necessarily mean there's no intermediary. Uh, and I think that the crypto people need to understand that very clearly. Uh, so, so just quickly to El Salvador. So you said that the adoption, um, the adoption rate for for Bitcoin is two percent. Yeah, only two percent of the whole uh, of the entire payment transactions are in Bitcoin at the moment. Wow, or less than two percent. Um, how I don't, I'm not sure how how familiar you are in terms of the just the use cases, but if if someone should use Bitcoin for everyday use. How do they actually handle potential high fees? Are you familiar with that at all in terms of El, Sal- El Salvador? I mean, do, do they use a lightning network or how do they handle the transaction fees? So none of them created in El Salvador and they're being created right now. Okay. So the gas fees, the usage fees, you need to have players rushing into El Salvador yes. to create these fee um, amelioration type of um, uh, platforms uh, where you know, where it becomes almost cash to be able to transact in El Salvador. So that's like, that's actually what I'm saying. You're saying exactly what I said in a different way, which is the battle is at the point of sale. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the fee part needs to be resolved. 
Now, I know payment processing companies uh, like AAA in Singapore, which is talking to uh, countries like El Salvador and uh, you know merchants in El Salvador and in other countries trying to resolve this problem at the moment. Um, so that has to happen, that, that, that the fee for transaction has to be minimized. And the second is that, I mean, of course, the, the, the timing problem has been resolved already. That's the lightning uh, yes. wallets that, that, are, that are taking care of that. So in El Salvador, the platform supporting uh, ubiquitous payments has to be resolved. Now, what I thought I learned in El Salvador is also very interesting in that the people who are true believers in Bitcoin, I asked them, I said, aren't you worried about the fluctuations in uh, Bitcoin? Uh, you know? mm-hmm. uh, and they said that as long as your assets and your liability side of your everyday life uh, in Bitcoin, uh, you are safe. So the more bills that you've got to pay in Bitcoin, uh, the more you're willing, on, willing to take on Bitcoin. Uh, and in this village um, in El Zonte, uh, you can pay rent in Bitcoin. So, oh wow! Okay, so that and rent is like a big uh, chunk of your of your liabilities. So, uh-huh. so the more liabilities that you have uh, that require Bitcoin, you the more willing you are to to accept Bitcoin as payment for you know things that you do. So this it's just that both sides of the equation has to level off, um, you know, and and be in the in the money uh, in the currency that you are trading on. So. When I saw that, I said, you know what? It, it is possible that despite the the spikes in Bitcoin uh, trading and valuation and so on, that you can have e- uh, stable ecosystems uh, where everything is in Bitcoin. Uh, it's just that it needs to get there. I was just going to ask you, do you think that actually, we're, we're speaking concretely about El Salvador, do you actually think that their BTC or Bitcoin adoption as a legal framework can succeed to replace the old traditional fiat framework and remove monetary control from the hands of the few? Or will both coexist in the finance 5.0 phase, <laughs> as you mentioned in the book? Do you think that that's, that's possible? I think that a stablecoin model would have worked better for El Salvador, but mm. already taken the first step towards Bitcoin adoption, uh, it should go all the way. Mm. Uh, all the way means that it has to uh, abolish the, or rather find technology that ha- helps to reduce fees to nothing. And it has to make a decision as to the, the fiat banking system that it has. Now, El Salvador has a complexity of problems. If you take a country like Kenya, where you have... Um, I think it's the Kenyan shilling, by the way. Uh, Kenyan shilling, that's right. Yeah. But uh, my, my point was the other one, which is uh, uh, M-Pesa. You know, the interesting thing about M-Pesa as a payment uh, platform is that it works fantastically in a country like Kenya, when, where very few people have bank account. Almost nobody has a bank account. So their mobile mm-hmm. becomes their bank account uh, and yes. a done deal. And, it's, and the mobile phone network is owned by the telco, which then needs to set up a deposit-taking company, which is then regulated, right? So, so it works perfectly in a country like Kenya. When you take M-Pesa to, uh, to Nigeria, it doesn't work very well. And then when you take it to South Africa, it doesn't work at all because most South Africans got, have got a bank account. And you mm-hmm. are definitely not taking M-Pesa to the US where everybody has a bank account, swears by it, write checks every day, uh, and just don't understand why they need to carry money uh, on a mobile device, right? So 
the thing is that the maturity levels of the different economies creates realities where you can enter you can uh, enter an emerging technology and it takes off in a country where the banking infrastructure is not fully built up yet now the thing about el salvador is that it's got a banking system that is probably 20 to 30% of the uh, total um, you know populations um, you know finance uh, financial need um, so it's not 10% like kenya or 5% uh, and it's not 60% like nigeria uh or you know or 80% like south africa so uh it's between a devil and a rock and a hard place in that it has to decide that if it wants to give up uh the traditional banking network mm-hmm. then it has to go uh, crypto all the way mm-hmm. right now uh it is it is still got you know entrepreneurs in el salvador who are trying to set up a digital banking network on the fiat currency while the country is uh you know establishing a commitment to bitcoin mm. um so in that way it is it will win neither battle you know it will it will not enable a lot of the ordinary people in the country to have bank accounts and neither will it succeed in uh in bitcoin uh, it has to make a decision that it it wants to go uh, all the way into bitcoin uh, and therefore um you know just focus on on transforming the points of sale the uh the, the exchange platforms uh so that there would not be the fee that that the prohibitive fee that bitcoin has in everyday life i'm just curious as a, as a side question uh so we used to have gold as a global global currency do you think that bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency could actually take that role uh so again in my book right you 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 pointed out the four phases yes so uh in the markets world gold and and uh and and bitcoin actually have started to look like each other right in fact uh they are both being affected by uh market uh shifts mm-hmm. uh in same way and they become an asset class an investable asset class both gold and bitcoin uh have uh are responding in exactly the same way to the market turmoil and so there are some people who say and i say this that bitcoin has become the digital gold uh is a valid investable asset class uh as gold is uh and the gold people don't like it because they think that no <laughs> uh, there's something intrinsically valuable in gold uh and then you know sure. point out the fact that gold has a utility and so on all the utility of gold has already been factored into the price of gold okay and and the price of silver as well yes. so the thing commodities have a utility about them uh you know like if silver is going to be used for the next big thing in technology you know that that price uh, will be reflected in the price of silver so that the aspect that uh gold and 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 commodities um silver and all these natural resources uh, have an intrinsic value uh is already accounted for now the intrinsic value of crypto or bitcoin will come in the network phase right so and uh and it's not evident yet um uh, but i see the the elements being put together as you see thousands of programmers around the world creating applications around bitcoin that means even if bitcoin itself cannot be used in the transaction but it provides the value the digital value from which you you create um other tokens that that can buy and sell bitcoin um you know so all of that uh, is being created now the utility of this does not necessarily mean that the price of bitcoin will go up in the same way 
that the utility of gold has not seen, uh, you know, that the value of gold goes up because of utilities, you know. So, so I think that there's a lot to learn from the market space and what about it will get carried into the network space, you know. And as I said, I actually believe that uh, when something becomes highly, the utility of something becomes uh, highly possible and, and highly valuable, the uh, tradable value of that, of that commodity actually collapses uh, because it needs to be more easy to transact uh, with ordinary people. So this is, again, another tr great transition. Uh, the value of assets as they move from institution to markets to, uh, to networks. And we shouldn't think that the value that they represent today is something that will get carried into the network world. You know, so when we think about Bitcoin and what its potential value is uh, in a market's world, um, you know, uh, we shouldn't think that it becomes even more valuable uh, when it moves into the network world. Well, um, Emmanuel, you are so knowledgeable about so many different aspects of finance and also just the evolving crypto world. You've, you've answered so many of my questions, almost <laughs> everything that I've had. Is there anything that you can share with us in terms of your roadmap? I mean, you, ju you just published your book. You are very busy. You are traveling to different countries and hands-on seeing what's going on in terms of the financial arena. What's in your roadmap for the next... In, in, in terms of the short term in the next year or so? Well, I'm just thinking that right after I wrote the book, uh, there's been a lot of activities, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and there's a lot happening in the crypto world. Uh, and, and we like to think that all of these are transformational. One thing I like about the approach that I'm taking is I'm sitting for three steps away from the current developments. Um, and I'm even watching, uh, you know, fintech festivals in Singapore, in London, uh, in Dubai, uh, you know, and how busy they are and everyone promising that uh, the revolution is near. Yeah. Taking stock of what actually, what it is uh, that I'm actually observing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the activity is um, uh, actually, you know, self-defeating. They, you know, they, they're all consuming and then you realize that the utilization is not there and, um, you know, and that the ordinary man's needs is actually far simpler than a lot of the technology that's being created right now. Yes. So a lot of it is technology that is uh, chasing for, you know, a reason to exist, you know. So then I, 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 keep, I keep my finger on the underlining evolution that, that is undeniable. And that is why I say in my book that the real transition is the personalization of finance, the personalization of society. As the individual is given more power and control over his transactions, he starts to behave differently. Uh, yes. That puts him in a conflict with institutions, with governments, you know, and with, with ultra-high network individuals Uh, who have incredible power to influence society. Mm -hmm. So then you need to see uh, this battlefield between um, state, uh, large business, um, the individual and ultra-high networks um, and how they're trying to shape each other and come up with, uh, you know, in social models that are workable. Um, you know, so, so the, the, the thing about sitting away from the everyday transactions that are taking place Uh, helps me to to keep my mind on the, what is the overall transition that is taking place. You know, now the thing is that I, I have two books after this. Like 
I think that this particular, the first book that I've written is such a primer that people who are looking for just straight answers uh, will read it and say, so what is he saying? You know, where is he just with it? So a second book would be, I would even, mm -hmm. you know, call it From Platforms to Personalization and basically list out uh, in no uncertain terms, uh, you know, where the transitions are taking place today. Um, you know, and, and uh, that's an easier read than, than the book that I've written. And another book that I have in mind uh, has um, is is um, I call it uh, the Winning Civilization. Uh, it's about countries and people, and and I think that all of us like to think, you know, when will my society, uh, you know, be a winning society, just like China has been in the last thirty years, or you know how how civilization itself, you know, transitioned from the British to the Americans, you know, after World War Two and and so on. I think that they're all interrelated with each other. Some of it has to do with the technologies that will take us, you know, to the next phase. But a lot of it will be how, you know, politicians and, and, and societies mm -hmm. uh, embrace the transformations that are needed. I think that all societies are evolving towards a level of personalization never seen before, meaning that the, the empowerment of the individual. And this is a transition that has been taking place for the last 500 years at least, you know, and technology is making that even more possible. Now, so that will mean that we need to start thinking about how we're going to be governed as societies and how, how much value we need to provide uh, or put on societies that respect the individual. And what does that mean? Because when you respect the individual and empower the individual increasingly, the potential for narcissism increases. In fact, that's my yes. the very last chapter of my book. I, I, I say that uh, personalization doesn't necessarily mean that it's a better society. It, it, it actually empowers the individual to a point of being able unable to hold a society together. So we need to start thinking about governance models going in, you know, going forward. And we already see this that you know, and and whenever we see something that's happening in the U.S. today, where individualism has already entered the face of narcissism mm -hmm. to realize that that level of narcissism will affect all societies. We are mm -hmm. start looking the same uh, as a lot of the upheaval that we see taking place in the U.S. today. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and in terms of the governance models, yeah, I mean, we, we actually haven't, we didn't even get to the, to maybe the conversation of DAOs, but uh, perhaps we can actually save that for, for a later time or next time when you, um, when you come back with another book, <laughs> with, with, the, with the book that you just mentioned. Emmanuel, this has been, this has been really insightful. In terms of wrapping this up, are, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Or maybe is there a question that I did not ask that you would like to answer yourself or have me ask? Oh, uh, no, not at all, Nina. Uh, thank you very much for, for you know, allowing me the, the freedom to, um, uh, to state my case. Absolutely. I think that by staying away from quick catch yes. phrases, uh, we go back to the 
underlining themes. And I think we've covered the ground quite well. And as you say, there's another conversation with DAOs, right? And for with DAOs, they, they are early days still. Yes. And if you're able to capture an association or a, or a contract on a DAO and a way of working with each other, um, you know, how does that, how does that whole society or a community together? Uh, and as you said, that's another conversation. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation to, to be had. Uh, and those communities are being created right now. Yes. Something that I said in my book was that banks uh, or the banking industry totally misunderstood the API revolution. Uh, and APIs are predecessors to the DAO, uh, which is the ability of uh, freelancers around the world to contribute to a development of something. So I think the institutions, the financial institutions have uh, misunderstood a couple of the evolutions that are taking place. And therefore, they are not going to be native uh, to the DAOs when they eventually evolve. So, so then the question is, um, uh, how, do, how do you ride the wave and, and uh, learn as, as the uh, new ecosystem of, of uh, association evolves? Well, uh, thank you, Emmanuel, for this uh, extremely educational and insightful um, information that you've provided uh, to our audience. It was truly an honor to speak with you. I personally found your book insightful, um, even though you say that it's it's hard to understand <laughs> in, in different parts. Maybe that was the feedback that you got. Sure, it, it can get it's technical with with a lot of data points, but I think it's it's really good to understand the evolution of what you call actually the historical evolution of finance. And I really enjoy the the theories that you put forth. I'd actually like to borrow two quotes from your book that really resonated with me. And I think I, I might have heard this on a, on a separate podcast, so I, I don't want to be a copycat, but I found the quote, innovation starts with people and not technology, really important. And the second one that you alluded to with the problem of narcissism was that perception has a price and it's not cheap. That's a, <laughs> that's a rabbit hole in itself. <laughs> yeah. Yes, thank you for thank you for picking that up. Yes, you're right. Uh, the value of perception. Oh my goodness, that's uh, yeah, yeah. Because again, we talked about the price of gold and Bitcoin. Yes, everybody thinks that we are we are valuing assets on some fundamental, and we've now already entered a universe where we are valuing assets on perception. Yes, you 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 hit something on on that one. Yeah, yeah. And with social media as being the medium and et cetera. So uh, food for thought for, for our audience. And, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, Emmanuel, what is, what is the best place for, um, for anyone to, to follow your work, to check out your book? And maybe you can share some contact information or where to, where to follow you. Yeah, you know, the, the, um, the reason I'm critical of my own book is because after having written it, I, I then have an, a, a ton of ideas. And I hope that anyone who reads the book will also have this kind of appeal, which is that, oh my goodness, it just triggered another three ideas in my own mind. Uh, and, if, uh, and I'm able to validate uh, a number of uh, new ideas that are generating my mind because I spent time writing the book to get back to first principles. I put a mishmash of uh, ideas as they're evolving uh, over time on my blog, which is emmanueldaniel.com. Uh, and actually details of the book itself is on the blog and details of uh, what I'm learning as I travel and, and meet all of these uh, you know, leaders in different countries. I, I do short videos and, and uh, put out notes. Uh, uh, you know, they, they look like a notebook, but uh, emmanueldaniel.com uh, is the best place to start. 
Great. Emmanuel, again, thank you so much for this. And um, like you said, any book, any any way of collecting thoughts, it's just a stepping stone. And um, I enjoyed the book and I hope the readers uh, will as well. So thank you and best of luck. And um, I hope to continue this conversation um, in some time. You know, I hope that we will too. Uh, you, you have a great podcast, which uh, you engage, um, you know, people who are thinking through things uh, in a very fundamental way. And I've been learning uh, watching your podcast as well. So, yes, let's keep in touch. And there will come a point where some of the questions you ask, uh, we, will, we will take it forward to another level. And perhaps revisit. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thanks much. Thanks. Thanks, Nina. Thanks again to our guest, as well as thank you everyone for listening. A big thanks goes to Hoi Market League for co-sponsoring this episode. Thank you also to the Baria Music team for providing their music. You can check out their latest album on bariamusic.com. You can find all supporting information on our website, blockchainrecorded.com, and listen to us on Google, Apple, and Amazon Podcasts, as well as Spotify, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Stay healthy and tuned for our next episode.